Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host, KB. We're here with Aaron Ricardo. Today we're going to discuss the starting journey of a game developer and what it entails with that. We're going to talk about libraries, C++, C Sharp, uh, a little bit of Half-Life. We're going to talk about staying motivated and everything else in between. This is our first ever podcast. We hope you guys enjoy it. We're going to produce more content every week and you can have an influence on that on our Facebook or community forum. So... Without further ado, let's get into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I got a, a good gaming feel. How'd you start yeah. gaming development? Uh, let's see, what year is it? 2019. Uh, let's see, I'm 45 this year. I was eight when I got my first computer. I think I wrote my first game at eight. Yeah. Really? Yeah, GW Basic. I wrote this game called Baboom. Baboom. Yeah, just. Three fireballs that would fall down the screen, and you had to dodge them. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was GW Basic. Uh, you know, you had uh, 320 by 200 pixels on your screen in four colors for that CGA adapter. Uh, it had three fireballs that would fall down the screen randomly, starting at you know one place, and then you had to dodge them. the The balance or the game balance logic for it was that after a random number of movements left or right, it would then increase the fireballs moving down the screen, uh, making them move a little bit faster. the uh, The edge scenario that I really never finished coding beyond that was that you could get the game to the point where if you were lucky enough, it would make it so that the fireballs would draw at the top of the screen and then at the middle of the screen and then back at the top of the screen. And that would have naturally been you know, the place where we would have increased the difficulty and you know added like a fourth fireball or something like that. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, ironically, the funny thing about it is that at that age, the amount of work that went into making that <laughs> pretty much turned me off for programming for a very long time. <laughs> wow, all at eight years old? Yeah. And that was on an original IBM PC XT 10 megahertz. With I actually had a 5 megabyte hard drive. I was spoiled because, you know, my dad worked for the government, so he got all of those... <laughs> You know, government refresh hardware pieces <laughs> for cheap. Yeah, yeah. That's something I noticed. Uh, game developers like twenty years ago, they would start really young because they were like mostly hobbyists, and uh, nowadays people are starting at like twenty, eighteen. Yeah, I feel like today it's definitely much more of a formalized yeah you can go to school to become a game developer. career education yeah, yeah exactly. a friend of mine is going to a uh, game development college yeah, so it's a full game, game development major you know yeah you think the most game development colleges are up to date or they leave you kind of falling behind yeah uh i know he had one of his classes where he like made an engine but you know, just very simple just no game loop and stuff. Yeah, there was a school called DigiPen up around Microsoft and Nintendo in Redmond. I'm originally from actually that area, um, and DigiPen always had a had a reputation of if you go to DigiPen, you'll likely get a job at Nintendo after you graduated. Okay. They were kind of like a feeder school to Nintendo at the time, and uh, you know I knew a couple of people that went through it, and they they learned how to program. I mean. The thing about programming, at least in my mind and from my perspective, is that you learn how to program, and it doesn't really matter much what the language is. 
yeah. working out the syntax for any given language is kind of secondary to actually just understanding the main concepts of what it is that you're trying to do when yeah, writing programs. True. Yeah, I see that's a big problem with many courses is that they don't approach it that way. They teach you the language and not how to program. It really hurts. You go to actually yeah, code it, something. You're like, wait, how did the video do it? Because they lose the thought process or you didn't think about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's important to know what's happening because especially with higher level languages, you can easily just use abstractions and not really know what your code is doing. And then if there's any problem with the abstraction, you waste like two weeks trying to fix it. Way too long. And yeah, and if you know what the abstraction is actually doing, you can do it like in half an hour. There's definitely some good conversations to be had around taking advantage of libraries versus coding things by hand. In C++, that conversation comes up a lot, especially with you know, each of the different platforms, Linux, Mac, and, and Windows, all implementing the standard library essentially on their own. You take Stephen, Stephen T. Lawe uh, from Microsoft is the guy who's responsible for implementing the standard template library for the Windows platform. And he does tons of talks on the, you know, on the, on the library and brings up this, you know, this kind of conversation quite a bit because it's one of those questions that he hears is, you know, well, would it be better for me to just write this code by hand? And as I understand it, uh, one of the main objectives of the library implementation teams and the library design teams is that anything that's written in the STL should essentially be the equivalent of your, what do they call it? The big O notation, right? The O1 version of it, you know, the, it should not be possible to write this code any more efficiently than it already is, is essentially what they get at. It's interesting because the language goes through, you know, has gone through a lot of different iterations and template metaprogramming is like a completely different, different concept. It's not the same as like generics from C sharp because template metaprogramming in C++ is about designing your application so that the compiler can do calculations prior to runtime by templatizing concepts. When you really get into it, it's kind of, it's kind of, <laughs> I'd call it kind of brainy <laughs> because it's, you know, it's a very abstract way to think about things. Like, one of the big challenges that I, that I hear from a lot of people, like when it comes to, um, when it comes to starting to work with C and C++ is the concept of allocating memory. Like, for an example, the standard template library has a vector, which is an automatically expanding dynamic array. You can also make arrays, and in most cases, arrays versus vector performance, the only real difference between them is the time that's used to reallocate memory, and it's convenient as a programmer to be able to use that, that, that technique, but prior to that, you had to know how big you needed to make an array. And so that also led to a lot of, you know, memory inefficiencies, like, for example, a maximum size buffer is 512k or whatever, right, or 512 bytes, so you have to allocate that much memory so that you can then fill it. You don't run into a lot of those kinds of requirements to be precognizant of what it is that you're trying to do because I always found that to be a challenge right I have to allocate an array size but I don't know how big it needs to be 
So how do I figure that out? Right. It's kind of a catch 22 chicken before the egg type thing. And there's a lot of things that have been built into the language to kind of solve those kinds of problems, but they still exist. And template metaprogramming just takes that to a different level where you need to, you need to kind of conceptualize what it is, you know, from a more in-depth calculation perspective, you kind of, it's the reason why they call it metaprogramming. You kind of have to think in a, in a more abstract way about how to make that code because you're making these, you know, these templates that the compiler interprets and does a lot of calculations before you actually get to runtime. That probably didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. How would somebody who's never programmed or has like very little experience get from that to where you are? Um, well, I just started learning the C++ language about three years ago. Mm -hmm. I have now 16 books on the topic, and I consider myself somewhat intermediate. Like, compare me to Dan M. as an example. I'm a noob compared to him. Yeah, Question. <laughs> 16 books written or read? Read. I have read. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I, I read and purchased about that, you know, roughly 16 books. I don't have an exact count. I approached it from the perspective that I would approach it. So the first books that I got were about design and patterns and the more abstract concepts, you know, like Ricardo was talking about related to, you know, how do I construct code because I've been writing code since I was a kid. Yeah. So I don't I don't need you to teach me about how to write syntax. I understand how logic works. What I need is kind of those bigger concepts. How am I supposed to, you know, craft an object? How do I make an API? How do I build a library of functions that are reusable? That kind of stuff. Yeah, and one thing you get nowadays is that most big languages are kind of derivative from C, so the syntax is pretty much the same. You have your Java's and your C sharps and your C plus and they pretty much look the same. Your JavaScripts, even. Yeah, largely. I mean, there are a number of languages that use that kind of that C standard syntax style, yeah. and then there's Python <laughs> and PHP. Uh, so I did LAMP programming in the 90s, and I remember PHP was similar, squiggly bracket notation. The, the main difference was that variables were yeah. not, not strong. <laughs> yeah, but JavaScript is like that. Yeah, and, and these days, you know, C++ and C Sharp both also support, you know, yeah. compiler determine the type, you know, yeah, type but, inference. You know, that's not really the same, because... No, it's not. And then, right. and then put a string and then put an object. <laughs> keep right, right. I have no idea how the how it works. Well, ultimately, memory level. Yeah, ultimately, everything in memory is a bunch of zeros and ones. It's just yeah, numbers. At the end, it's probably if you change the type, it's probably gonna just you know allocate some new memory somewhere else. So it's yeah, exactly. Another variable. If it needs to, really yeah. Good practice to change the type of a variable. So. Oh, absolutely not. That's something that you should try to avoid for sure. Yeah, I, I like non-strongly typed languages to prototype some some stuff because it's kind of faster, especially to consume web services. 
for prototyping it's better instead of having to like import create a class for your entire response you just get it in, as a javascript object for instance i i found the whole entire thing to be just also got started with c sharp i uh if you remember the xbox 360 used to have a development kit called xna this is xna framework which was essentially just a c sharp wrapper around DirectX, and uh Interestingly, I think a lot of the code from XNA ended up getting donated to either the Mono Project or Unity or both. Um, so there's a lot of similarities between those. I picked up a book called uh, Game Development by Example using C Sharp, and it was basically just a, it guided you through making, a, I think it was five or six different games, a, you know, a little puzzle game where you'd click on a click on a pipe and it would like, turn the pipe and you'd try and make water get from one place to another by twisting the pipes um, to make them connect. And then there was a, a, a a star algorithm example where you had little monsters that would like path their way around different obstacles on a tile map. And uh, there was a side scroller with an editor and uh, I think like an asteroids type game. And, and going through that was actually really valuable because it, it got you to, you know, like, like Ben Tristam has been telling us, you know, it takes four or five, six games, you know, of, of small scope to really get decent at doing this kind of stuff. And that's basically what it did. It stepped you through, you know, increasing complexity through like five different games. And that was also in C Sharp. This was basically before Unity existed. So, uh, you know, that was kind of my first exposure to object-oriented programming for the first time. Again, you know, using C-sharp, it was, uh, it was a, it's an easy language to learn, especially coming from, you know, a C-style coding background. So, yeah, that was, that was really how I got into it. Yeah, because I know there's a lot of, I was reading a lot of comments on Facebook, and people, I guess, they lose interest or they just don't see a lot of progress happening. It makes it hard for them to keep going. But it's like constantly putting in the hours every day. You'll start seeing results. And then eventually... Yeah, it's ultimately what it comes down yeah. to. Writing code is a time-consuming process, and you have to literally write the movement of every single bit in your game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it takes a very long time, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I'd say uh, it shows how important it is to do small games at first at least because it's really easy to start with a big project and then you do a bunch of basic mechanics and then when you get to actually building levels or even before that you end up losing interest uh, mostly yeah when you did level design did you learn it or did you just go into it and start making levels I mean, for me, it was just, yeah, I mean, at that time, it was more of a challenge to try and find an editor, even. So, yeah, these are, so for Doom, I used a utility called Wadded. I think I found information about it on a dial-up BBS. <laughs> And and ordered a floppy disk from the guy through mail to get a copy of the editor, and that was you know, and I still actually have that floppy disk to this day. Funny enough, um, so I mean that's how I got into starting to do Doom level design. Um, 
Yeah, maybe it wasn't quite that long. It wasn't necessarily dial-up BBS, but it might have been dial-up internet at the very least. Um, yeah, I mean, back then it was, you know, like you were saying earlier, there's not a lot of us out there doing this kind of stuff. So it was, it was a lot more of a tight-knit community. Everybody, you know, used... Everybody used Worldcraft for making, you know, maps for Quake because that was the tool that everybody was using. We all talked on IRC was mostly the, you know, the main community forum at those times, yeah, other than, you know, individual forums for, you know, various topics. Um, yeah, I mean, you pretty much just, if you had an interest in it, you'd find a tool that worked for you and, and start playing with it to see, you know, how it worked. I, I remember some of the first times, you know, trying to build maps in the Quake engine, it, it seemed weird for me, right? Because I, I'm using this editor, I've got the ability to write a box on the screen. And so I draw this box on the screen, and that doesn't actually turn into a level. You have to put six boxes in there to make a box, <laughs> right? Which didn't make a whole lot of sense compared to the unreal engine at the time which was a csg based editor you actually wrote a box and then you subtracted that from a solid world whereas the way that the quake engine worked was that you created these brushes that were boxes you know or, or solid bricks that you would then form a room out of and then as you used the first you know the first there were three utilities you had to run it through you had to run it through bsp csg and then viz uh, and the first step of BSP turned the BSP into a CSG by basically mapping out the interior surface of the level and then separating that into various leaf nodes and discarding all of the extra pieces. It was, you know, it was, it was more for the, for the Quake style editors. It was more like building with Legos. Uh, but you were kind of like building the outside of the space and enclosing it. And, you know, one of the first tests was, you know, what BSP did was it tested to make sure that there weren't any leaks in your map because it had to have the ability to enclose the entire space in. It was more just kind of all of us, you know, learning and, and trying to figure out, you know, what was going on inside of John Carmack's head, because that's really, you know, at that time, the only person who really, truly understood what was going on there. We were all just guessing. Yeah, but any things they could take away? <laughs> I mean, the only thing that you can really say is the game development is fun, but it's still work. You know, just yeah. like you hear all of the movie producers saying, you know, yeah, it's fun to make movies, but it's still a job. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, when it's an actual job, you have a schedule, you have deadlines, you can't, you know, stop a project for six months to go to the beach or something. Right, just because you're bored. <laughs> yeah, you have to see through, especially if it's actually paying your bills, you have to see through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you notice some things, make sacrifices. Yeah, you even if you're like a freelancer or doing your own game, if you wanna live from games, you make a living from games. Uh, yeah, you sometimes have to do stuff you don't really like. If you wanna do your first game and you you only like like coding, you might have to do some models or work with textures and stuff or and uh, yeah that's a problem i had because i really dislike the artist's por portion so 3d models and textures mostly uh and sound design sound design is another thing that 
many, you know, indie games can lack. Yeah, it sounds uh, definitely rough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's super important, even though mm -hmm. you're not seeing it, but it's giving you the vibe and the feel for the, the level. Uh, that's something that's really easy to overlook. I think that's something that maybe we could definitely dig into on another one of these podcasts is what, you know, these days is called UX or user experience, which oh, yeah. is more than just, you know, the user interface. It's, it's like you're saying sound design. Like when you click on something, when you move your mouse on something, hearing, you know, audible feedback, directional yeah. audio in the yeah. game as part of that experience is all very important. I think Fallout does a fantastic job of that with their directional audio, the new Fallout 76. I know not very popular, popular with everybody but i love it to death i'm on like my fifth character right now um but it has so many things that are that are definitely you know that are part of that audio experience and and it adds so much depth to that experience as you know you're creeping around trying to oh did i hear that did i hear that uh, super mutant grunting behind me was he to the left you know can i peek around this bush so yeah ux is definitely a definitely a, a topic that we can get into <laughs> yeah uh being someone that played some old rpgs uh you see that a lot with older rpgs mostly that they are wiki games and wiki games are fun for like some people but it's a pretty small niche uh and having this idea of user experience behind you can help you build more interesting games, more fun games. Can you can help the player engaged? Because either having super lengthy tutorials that have walls of text, or having the user have to actually alt tab out of your game and Google something, that's when they quit the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for hosting, Kevin. This was uh, this was a fun conversation. Yeah, I think we I think we can definitely do this more. Definitely. See you guys. All See you. Right. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap, guys. How'd you guys think of it? Let us know. It will definitely improve on feedback. We are making this a community podcast. This is not just a game dev podcast. This is everyone here. I am running the podcast, and I'm also working on it with a group of people, an Unreal Review Group. But if anybody wants to help out, if anybody wants to talk, if anybody has any topic or any guests they can invite on or anything they want to share to the GameDev.com community, by all means, let us know. If you have a game you're working on and you want us to broadcast it on the podcast, do it. Let us know. If you have an awesome Blender project you did and you want to showcase it, let us know. We'll make little small YouTube clips for you guys. We'll make this something for everyone. This is what this podcast is for. This is for you guys who are doing the Unreal course, the Unity course, Splendor course, all the courses in GameDev.tv to go on your daily commutes and listen to this and feel like you're still learning, you're still part of the community, even if you don't have time. We're going to answer questions for you guys. We're going to showcase news and current events and new courses and even some technical stuff. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. We'll see you guys next week.